What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Nursery rhymes are one form of poetry that is familiar to so many people. These rhymes serve as a foundation for all kinds of childhood activities and are told and retold in all kinds of situations and in all types of cultures. While rhymes come in their very classic form, it's fun to see modern writers take these traditional forms and make them new and fun. One such rhyme that many authors have made their own is the classic rhyme, This is the House that Jack Built. This classic rhyme is cumulative, meaning that it builds on each section by adding one new element. This kind of poem is great fun for kids who love the repetition that builds into a very silly story. If you're looking for a beautifully illustrated version of the poem in its very classic form, I'd suggest Sims Tayback, This is the House that Jack Built. His quirky illustrations are just perfect for this rhyme. But if you want more than classic versions, today there's lots of authors who use this pattern to build their own amazing rhymes. One of my recent favorites is The Treasure of Pirate Frank by Mal Pete and Elspeth Graham, which tells the story of a boy and his dog who set out to find the treasure of Pirate Frank as they move over mountains and bridges, only to find a very unique surprise at the end. Another fun version is Bonnie Verberg and Mark T's rendition, The Treehouse That Jack Built, that extends the original poem in an interesting way with amazingly complex illustrations. If you're looking for a little nonfiction, there's options here too, with The House That George Built by Suzanne Slade and Rebecca Bond, which takes the classic rhyme and sets it around the building of the White House. Such a fun way for kids to learn about how the president's house came to be with this connection to the classic poem, but with added information on the side and nice illustrations to add depth. So no matter what forms it comes in, a little bit of a classic nursery rhyme is just the kind of thing we like to read and recommend here at Rachel's World. They say it's never too early to introduce a child to reading. So when should you begin? At birth? or even before, in the womb, by osmosis, or maybe during early infancy, holding a baby in your lap. Our first guest, Kathleen Brown, director of the University of Utah Reading Center, shares some tips on the most productive ways to help a child learn to read beginning at an early age. Kathleen Brown spent seven years in southern Idaho as a remedial reading and migrant education teacher. Her doctorate at the University of Utah focused on comprehension instruction with a postdoctorate in reading intervention. Nowadays, Dr. Brown is dedicated to supporting the struggling reader on a regular basis because she believes that to talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. Here's Rachel with Kathleen Brown. We're in studio today with Kathleen. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I am very excited to share your expertise with my audience today. One of the areas that you have a lot of knowledge in is about how to help our beginning readers and how to help them learn to read. And I think that that's a really important topic, particularly for parents and also for teachers to understand these dynamics. One of the things that really 
is important to me, though, is that I think that there are a lot of myths about beginning reading instruction that we subscribe to, particularly as parents or lay people who may not understand that. So maybe address for us beginning, what are some of those myths that you see that are about beginning reading and, and how do we address them? How do we kind of tackle those myths? Yeah, there certainly are myths. Uh, One of the most prevalent myths that I still hear is that uh, if you teach a child to read, teaching a child to read before kindergarten or first grade hurts them somehow. And uh, that's absolutely a myth. In fact, there are no data that support that position. In fact, the wealth of the research will show you that children who learn to read early um, outperform students who don't, all the way through high school. And that finding cuts across class, race, gender, you name it. So in no way at all does a, uh, learning to read harm a child. Now, I think, where I, think, I think where people got this idea was, I think they envisioned sort of academic boot camps for two-year-olds where... <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> I, I can envision those, yeah. yes. You know, yeah. you know uh, s- s- forcing children to undergo horrible drill and kill routines that worksheets with phonics and sight words exactly (laughs) and and it it so doesn't have to be that way what i think is the most productive way to usher children into the world of reading can start as early as the toddler years two three and definitely into preschool and i think the the key attitude or environment that needs to be set for that to happen should be uh, a parent or a preschool teacher should think about or or, or, a, or a caretaker you know someone that's babysitting for kids i think this can be done in any of those environments would be think short bursts right when the kid is bored stop or when the child sort of seems to indicate okay i'm done with that stop but regular frequent Short bursts of activity with game-like activities. Keep it fun. That I, I really appreciate that perspective because a lot of times when we think of beginning reading, I think we think of that decoding piece mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we're learning the sounds and mm-hmm. the letters. And, which is key. Which is key. But so much of this beginning, beginning stuff is not about that. Exactly. It's about how do we use a book? How do we turn the pages? Mm-hmm. The more physical nature of all of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is just kind of absorbed through these experiences that we're giving children. So it doesn't have to be this kind of thing mm-hmm. where, you know, you're pounding the phonics or pounding mm-hmm. the alphabet. But it's just having those experiences mm-hmm. provide that foundation, mm-hmm. which I think is revolutionary in many ways and breaks that myth of saying, you know, we have to, we can't do that because we do need to do that. That's what prepares the kids for kindergarten and later reading work. You're exactly right. In fact, Marilyn Adams, who really was um, the breakthrough researcher and author who uh, wrote a book in, um, I want to say, 2000. Learn, it's, she calls it learning about print. Beginning to read, thinking and learning about print. And that's exactly right. You nailed it. It is. It's you absorb it over many children absorb it over many, many hours of fun filled, warmth filled, emotionally nurturing filled um, activity. Now, some kids, many kids don't have that. And that's where I think we need to take a as a nation, a strong look at when our children are in caretakers are are. are are served by caretakers in preschools, how can we provide that kind of quality environment for children of poverty? 
because if you don't get that, um, you come to school at a disadvantage. Yeah, and I, I love that sense that we need to provide this to a broader audience because that really is one of those power dynamics that kids that come in with this these experiences do better in school. And we need to do a better job as a nation doing that. But how do we make that transition between these more kinds of experiences to that decoding, to sure. the more phonetical kinds of things? Absolutely, because you are... You are right. Uh, that's that is just reading aloud to reading aloud to children is necessary but not sufficient. For them to be successful readers, there are some other key foundational areas that have to be laid down, or it doesn't happen. And that's where we end up with struggling readers who end up graduating even from high school barely literate. The, in addition to learning about how text works, there are two other areas that I think are critical. One of them is uh, you could call it alphabet work. You know, more um, more specifically, it's taking the knowledge of letter names and sounds to an absolutely innate automatic level. The other critical piece that I would say in terms of foundation, so we've already got learning about print by being read aloud to, alphabet knowledge. The third would be phonological awareness sounds fancy but think about it this way it's speech sounds being aware of how speech sounds work that ability is alphabet knowledge and phonological awareness are the two key cognitive indicators of eventual reading success or not. Well, and I really think that that's important, this kind of foundation that we're building, particularly for beginning readers, because everything else comes above that. Um, As we kind of close up this conversation today, though, maybe give us one or two tips about how to do that alphabetic awareness and the phonological awareness. Maybe one or two things we could do at home or one or two Mm -hmm. activities that we might engage in Mm -hmm. that would help us to achieve those two ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we have some. Can I put in a shameless plug for our website? Please do. I would encourage any interested parents, caregivers, preschool teachers to go on to our website, www dot u-u-r-c dot org. So it's like University of Utah Reading Clinic, the acronym, www.uurc.org. And look for, uh, look for resources for parents, for educators, for all. There are some wonderful tips there. But I'll share a couple with you yes. now. Okay, so one would be um, when you're driving, when, when you're driving with your child and your child's in the car, you can play the rhyme game. Um, I see a tree, B, C, me, knee, right? So you model it. Modeling is critical for all of this. Uh, What do you see? The child says, I see a car, bar, mar, far. It doesn't matter if the words are real that they generate. It's just you want them to feel the language of rhyming in their mouths because that connects to their... it connects to their brain in ways that says, I can fool around with speech sounds in a fun way, which later becomes a real cognitive hook to hang decoding on, if that makes sense. The other thing I would add, here's another fabulous activity, and this is described thoroughly in our website. Have a puppet that has a mouth, okay? You buy a puppet that has a mouth that can open and close. Buy some magnetic letters, put them on the fridge. Sit down, hold your child in your lap. Put two letters that do not look like each other up on the fridge. I love using M and S to start. Lowercase, please. Because remember, they see lowercase more than anything. Everybody wants to start with uppercase. I just think that's 
not necessary. I mean, it's necessary, but I would start with the lower. And you say, for example, um, I had a puppet uh, named, uh, it was a chicken that opened its mouth. So Charlie, Ch- Charlie Chicken wants to eat an M. Can you find the M for Charlie Chicken? And the child has to choose between the M and the S. You're going to model it first. Can you feed that to Charlie and then have the puppet eat, quote, eat, unquote, the letter? What's the name of that letter? So, Rachel, what's the name of that letter? It's M. Oh, yeah. what is it? M. Oh, look, Charlie, he's he's enjoying that so much. And you know what M says? M says, mm. What mm. does M say? Mm. Mm. Okay. And so then now I say, you know what? Charlie wants to eat now. He wants to eat an S. He wants, can you, can you find the S for him? Okay, go ahead, feed him. <laughs> oh, that was so good. Rachel, tell me. What was the name of that letter? S. Okay, here. Would you put it back up on the fridge? Yes. Okay, and so, yeah. you know, you can do that. I love it. Like I said, short bursts, game-like activities. When they're tired of it, let it go. The nice thing is, is if you can do this lovely distributed practice over a couple of years, your child will walk into kindergarten knowing all the letter names and sounds and have will have done it through fun with and warmth with you. And that connection to me is foundational here. It's not just about the activities. It's about the warmth and love. And that builds the warmth and love towards the reading and the letters and all of these wonderful things. Yeah. When your child picks the right letter, you snuggle in his or her neck and say, oh, you are this. You are a clever you're so, boy. You're so smart. You, you did that so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. That really, it, it, this breaks it down in such a beautiful way. Thank you so much for helping us see that it's not as hard as we might think it is. It's, it's about play. It's about fun. It's about exploring language with short our bursts. kids. Short bursts at home and getting them ready and prepared for kindergarten to be those extraordinary readers that we know they all can be. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I You're appreciate so very it. You're welcome. Kathleen Brown, director of the University of Utah Reading Center, sharing some tips on how to teach children to read, steps that can be taken beginning at a very young age. Next, Rachel welcomes poet Margarita Engel, author of many children's books in free verse form that are often focused on significant hero-like persons who have been left out of history. Margarita talks about how poetry can be a safe place for emotions, as well as a good way for children to have connection with someone living in another time in history. Margarita Engel is the National Young People's Poet Laureate, and as a Cuban-American, is the first Latina to receive that honor. She's a trained agronomist and botanist, as well as a poet and novelist of award-winning books, including The Surrender Tree, Drum Dream Girl, and All the Way to Havana. Here's Rachel with Margarita Engel. We are on the phone today with one of my favorite poets and also an award-winning poet. We are so excited to welcome today Margarita Engel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Margarita, I love poetry, and I know that there are those out there that don't really have a sense of the beauty of poetry. Maybe they had a bad experience with it at some point in their lives. So share with us to start out, why poetry? What is it that you think poetry helps us to convey that particularly might connect to our children and help them to connect to their lives and emotions in a very important way? Well, I've been reading and writing poetry since I was a small child, and I think that it's always uh, served a couple of needs for me. One was that it is a safe 
place for emotions. And um, I think that very complicated emotions and very complicated historical situations can kind of be distilled down to their emotional essence in verse. I think that rather than memorizing facts and figures, I'd like, you know, when I write about a historical subject, for instance, I want to ask the question, how did it feel to live in that time and place? And so I write these often multiple voice verse novels, or in the case of Enchanted Air, a verse memoir. And um, I would hope that a child or teenager reading that, maybe reading it out loud, maybe using it as reader's theater, would be able to imagine how it feels to be somebody else. I think that empathy, when we listen to each other's stories, um, creates compassion, and compassion to me is the seed of peace. That is a perfect way to look at that, that connection between compassion and peace. One of the things I love about all of your books is that you love to speak of people that maybe are lesser known or maybe that are as heroic as some of the names that we might know, but have been not quite as lauded as as some others. So why is it that you pick to write about the little people or the people that may not have been quite so known throughout history? You know, the truth is that they're not little. <laughs> they're, they're either dark-skinned or women. There you they've go. Been, <laughs> they've been written out of history. They've, yeah. been for, they've been just left out and forgotten, and each history book copies the one before it as to who to include. My next picture book that will come out in the... Um, well, actually, I have one about the author of Don Quixote, who is as famous as uh, Shakespeare in Latin America, but not well-known in the U.S. But in in the spring, I have a book called The Flying Girl, which is about a Cuban-American teenager who flew a motorized dirigible six months before the Wright brothers flew their fixed-wing airplane. And she is not in any book about aviators. She's not in any book about women, pilots. This is obviously discrimination. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) You know, retroactively, I can say this person was left out of history, and I love to do anything I can to help bring somebody back who deserves to be better known. But not just to be better known in terms of famous, but to show certain characteristics. Generally, the people I choose to write about were independent thinkers, tried something new, and they persevered. I love how you bring these people that we may not know about and help us to come to know them and come to know how they changed the world and what such a strong impact they had on all different fields, art and science and and history along those lines. How do you go about picking these people that you're going to write about? Is is there a lot of research involved? Is there uh, inspiration involved? Or is it just something that connects to that emotional place for you that we were speaking of earlier? Well, both of those, both um, research and 
inspiration. I read a lot, and so when I read about somebody amazing or a, a fascinating aspect of whatever subject, I'm get, I get all excited. Whether I decide that I want to learn more and write about it depends on whether I feel like it has a hopeful ending. <laughs> I won't write a story for young people that ends with, uh, you know, and then he uh, did something mean. <laughs> it has to end with, and then he did something uh, kind, you know. For me, um, hope and peace are two, just two basic themes in these stories. And I feel like no matter how much suffering there is along the way to that hopeful ending, it's softened by poetry. It really is so true. And as our Young People's Poet Laureate, you're advocating now for poetry to be a part of children's lives. So what part of children's lives do you think poetry should be, both as a reader and as a writer of poetry? Well, one of the really amazing things that poetry can do for anybody, a child, teenager, or adult, is invite you to slow down and pay attention with all your senses. You know, at least five. Maybe there's more. Maybe that we don't oh, understand. Every, don't every sense. Yeah. But uh, it, it just invites you to give it your full attention. And, and that's something that because in our daily lives we tend to be disconnected from nature. Everybody always talks about being connected. But we're kind of disconnected from nature and we forget to pay attention, you know, to an insect crawling along the ground or a bird flying overhead or uh, just the daily amazing beauties that we see then when not paying attention so we don't even realize that it happened. You know, we're staring at our phone screens. Uh, Poetry invites you to set the phone down, turn it off, and either read or write multitasking is the enemy of poetry. I think that you can only do one thing at a time when you read or write poetry. (laughs) And that's that full attention, which is actually, it's like medicinal. (laughs) That, that is gorgeous. I, I, I needed a poet to state that. I think that is so, that is so beautiful. And there's this connection that it seems to me also that this kind of slowing down and looking at ourselves and the world around us is also part of that emotional thing. Because I think far too often when it comes to emotion, we're rushed and hurried or we have, a, you know, anger or fear that comes really fast and furious. And I think as far as creativity goes and as far as developing empathy and peace in our world goes, that having that imaginative, creative mind is is going to be the main thing that helps us. That's such a perfect note for us to end our conversation on today, Margarita. Thank you so much for taking the time to introduce yourself to our audience. And I would encourage all of our listeners out there, run out and pick out a book of poetry and particularly one of Margarita's if you haven't read and open your mind to the great joys of the world around us. Thank you so much for sharing your talents and your love of the world and your love of people with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
Margarita Engel, National Young People's Poet Laureate, talking about her books that often focus on overlooked heroes from the past. We finish up the show today with children's book author Deborah Wiles, who chats with Jessica Verzello of the World's Awaiting Team about her 60s trilogy series that brings to light what living in that time was really like. So I recently read Countdown, um, literally finished it last night. So I, I just have some questions. I love the format. Um, oh, good. <laughs> this documentary novel is just so unique to me. And what was your inspiration for that? I invented it. I made it up. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> I'd been teaching in schools for a long time as an author, going in and teaching writing. And it was so obvious to me that students didn't understand the context of history. I didn't either growing mm-hmm. up, and neither did my children growing up. And we teach history as dates and places and events, people. And I wanted something that would show context. And I wanted to write about the 60s because I grew up in the 60s, and it was a really, along with being a volatile time, it was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And so many things were happening. So I wrote a proposal to write a documentary novel that would have primary source material in it in scrapbooks, and so it would be nonfiction, fiction, and biography. And Scholastic said yes, and that was really a surprise. (laughs) And not to write revisionist history, but to be able to show all sides of a story. So that's what the impetus was, was I want to do something like that that helps us to see that at the same time, for instance, that John Glenn is circling the world in the Mm -hmm. spacecraft in 1962, James Meredith is integrating the University of Mississippi. And we don't know that when we just have dates and facts and time. Yeah, we don't connect it the same way because what I really loved was getting those snippets of the advertisements and then the biography and then the narrative and it all coming together. Right. And that's something I also really loved about the novel because it's so applicable to what's going on yeah. today as well. Yeah. History repeats itself and we learn from the past or we don't. You know, so I wanted to offer up another way of looking at what's happening now. I mean, when, when we first were writing about the 60s, I was thinking, all right, how are kids going to relate mm-hmm. to a time period that's almost 50 years in their past? Now is 50 years in their past. But then I started thinking, okay, well, we have so many connectors. Um, she's in love with the boy across the street. Her teacher is skipping her three times and reading aloud. Her, she's the middle child. She feels mm-hmm. like she can't do anything right. She has a best friend who doesn't like her anymore, you know, all those sorts of things. So it's still, it's historical, but it should ring true to today as well. There's a quote that Joellen says, you know, there's always scary things going on. There's always wonderful things going on in the world, but it's how you approach it. It's how you look at it. And I, I love that. I mean, that, that is what really hit home for me, that this isn't just, you know, historical fiction or documentary or, you know, opening this context to young readers. It is a, a statement on how we can approach the world today. Well, that, thanks. I, I'm glad you see it that way because I also see that quote, which was important to me as well. I see that quote as a way ahead, mm-hmm. and that's why it's in there too. You know, you're reading this book and you're 10 now or you're 11, and it's 2014, 2017, 2020. You know, this is a way ahead. You know, we get to choose how we react to what's going on. 
Speaking of 11-year-olds, I love Franny. I, I just, <laughs> I feel like I was her, you know, and I love her sass and her just blunt honesty with herself and with her world. How did you capture that voice so well? Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thanks. I, uh, Franny is me at that age, and I just remember that age so well. I always say I write for 10-year-old me. It's who I have been at that. I'm probably still that person, <laughs> but you know, maybe dressed in grown-up clothes. But that age, you're just so full of feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just so full of the righteousness of what's right and what's wrong and what you want and what you don't want and the way it ought to be and the way it isn't. And for all those young readers who read it, I want them to see themselves. And that's what we do as writers. We're hoping that. Our readers see themselves in a story because then it resonates with their own world and their own, what they know, what they feel, what they can imagine. And, and books heal. You know, books are balm, they're comfort, they're challenge, they're all kinds of things. But that's why we write, I think. Children's book author Deborah Wiles talking about her 60s trilogy series that she wrote to help others understand the real happenings and stories in the 1960s. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in weekdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.